1: Welcome to Spectator Out Loud with me, Lyndon Cancaran. Each week, we choose our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask our writers to read them aloud. Coming up on the podcast this week, Cindy Yu tells a story of how she got to know Westminster's alleged Chinese agent and the astonishment of seeing herself pictured alongside him when the story broke. Charlie Taylor, His Majesty's Chief Inspector of Prisons, talks breakouts, bureaucracy and stabbings and wonders where have all the inspirational leaders gone? And Petroc Trelawney shares his classical notebook and describes a feeling of sadness as the BBC proms wraps up for another year. First, it's Cindy Yu.
2: On Monday, I was surprised to discover a photo of myself in the papers next to a parliamentary researcher who had been arrested on suspicion of being a Chinese agent. The photo was taken in February at a panel in Parliament entitled Defeating the Dictators. The man and I are both 20-something China watchers who work in Westminster. I'd got to know him in a professional capacity, but every so often we had a drink together or hung out at a friend's flat. It was only when I saw reports of his arrest that I realised I hadn't heard from him since an evening six months ago, when we teamed up to play Codenames, the board game in which rival spy masters raced to rendezvous with their agents. We smashed the other team. According to reports, he and a second man in his 30s were arrested in March, He has not yet been charged and has protested his innocence. Given what has been reported, it is vital that it is known that I am completely innocent. I have spent my career to date trying to educate others about the challenge and threats presented by the Chinese Communist Party, he said in a statement. The accusations are that he used his influence to soften criticism of China while discrediting others. It was reported that sensitive, but not classified, material had been exchanged. I couldn't believe what I was reading. It's true that if he had been working as a Chinese asset, he could have been useful, given the access he had. He was linked to senior Tories such as Tom Tukenha, now the security minister, and the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Alicia Kearns. A British former senior intelligence officer I know tells me that it's not unusual for intelligence services to sponsor someone at a junior level and then help them climb the ranks. The Chinese do this, he says, but so do the CIA and other intelligence services. In recent decades, Chinese espionage has become less centralized, whereas the former premier Zhou Enlai had to sign off on the two-decades-long honey trap on a French diplomat that was the inspiration for the David Cronenberg film M. Butterfly. The officer tells me, I don't think Chinese intelligence services are today subject to any restraints when it comes to operations against foreign states. But the question that has bothered me in the past few days is this. If the allegations are true, what could possibly motivate someone to do such a monumentally stupid thing? I was asked a similar question by a scriptwriter back in June. He was working on a television drama about a British-born Chinese spy managing to infiltrate the British elite. How would something like that happen? The scriptwriter asked me. What would motivate a British citizen to do this? What kind of backstory would be believable? As thrilling as the storyline seemed, it felt far-fetched. And yet here we are, supposedly with almost the same events unfolding in Westminster. I told the scriptwriter that if I had to hazard a guess, and I'm by no means an expert on espionage, a young Brit could be recruited via a short scholarship to an elite Chinese university, perhaps Peking or Tsinghua. These places happen to be the feeding schools for future leaders of the Chinese Communist Party. A bright but naive student could easily become exposed to CCP influence. Even so, It would surely require quite some persuasion to engage in something so dangerous as espionage. Or at least so I thought. Everybody can be recruited in the right circumstances, the officer tells me. It's about asking the right questions to the right people at the right time, he says. A recruit could be charmed with a compelling narrative of Chinese culture or persuaded China was wronged by Western imperialism. Money or sex could be a factor. If there is some deep-seated anti-Americanism, this could be developed into pro-communist sentiment. The recruitment of every intelligence agent is individual to the person involved, says the officer. Of course, not everyone who visits China learns Chinese or spends time in Chinese institutions is compromised. In fact, Britain desperately needs more people who understand China working in its institutions. According to a Freedom of Information request made by The Spectator in 2021, there are only 41 British diplomats who speak Mandarin at the highest level in the entire Foreign Office, four fewer than in 2016. Compare this with the thousands of Sovietologists who worked for Britain during the Cold War. The gap is more alarming when you consider just how many Chinese diplomats speak fluent English. I've met several young Brits who can speak and read Chinese, but they tend to end up in the private sector because there aren't enough jobs in government, and probably because the pay is so much better. It's these people who will increasingly find themselves viewed suspiciously after this spy story. So how to decide who is loyal? It may be time to revisit the vetting procedure surrounding Parliament, especially for anyone who works on foreign policy. It should be made very clear to anyone in Westminster where the line lies between above-board information sharing and covert dalliances. Could the parliamentary researcher have been a useful idiot, not quite realising the seriousness of what he was doing? The wrong reaction, though, would be to assume that people with experience of China are already compromised, or that those who advocate a more sophisticated approach to the country, as the researcher in question did, must have ulterior motives. I would say this, though, wouldn't I? This is exactly the mission of my podcast, Chinese Whispers, where I try to contextualise and explain China's complexity. Sometimes that means challenging the West's assumptions about the country in an uncomfortable way. I'm still shocked that someone I know who seems so ordinary could be accused of being a Chinese agent. But this episode shouldn't be used as an excuse to target all things Chinese. Instead, we need to understand better how China and its spies really operate. That was Cindy Yu. Next is Charlie Taylor.
0: Just as the drama of The Escape and recapture of Daniel Khalif settled down, HMP Wandsworth returned to more routine problems. On Sunday, another prisoner was hospitalised, having been stabbed by a fellow inmate. This sort of violence is all too common, especially in the overcrowded Victorian local prisons that hold often volatile remand prisoners. In the past year, there have been 1,878 serious assaults on prisoners, an increase of 32% on the previous 12 months. The cause is usually a score being settled between gangs or the failure to pay a debt. There is big money to be made getting drugs and mobile phones into prisons. And since Covid restrictions were finally lifted, the availability of drugs has shot back up. Although the levels are not yet what they were before the pandemic, our recent inspection at the high-security Woodhill Prison near Milton Keynes revealed that in a random drugs test, 38% of prisoners tested positive. Most prisons now have better systems for disrupting drug supplies, but the staff are up against organised crime gangs who find ingenious ways to break through. And drugs lead to the kind of debt that can end in retributive violence. Escapes such as caliphs are very rare. In my three years as Chief Inspector, only one other inmate has managed to get away by slipping out of the visits hall while staff were distracted. That previous incident had nothing like the profile of last week's case because the man was in for a more mundane offence and quickly recaptured. Prisoners occasionally abscond from open prisons, but far less than in the past. What happens surprisingly often is accidental releases. 71 last year, up from 54 the year before. These normally involve a failure in the bureaucracy, whereby a prisoner with an outstanding arrest warrant is allowed to leave at the end of his or her sentence, or because the court grants bail without anyone realising that he or she is facing another charge. Most are caught again, but some serious offenders have managed to get away. Security for breakouts from prisons generally works well because there are clear routines to follow such as searching on top and under departing vehicles, but also because the systems avoid a single point of failure. If someone leaves a gate open, other layers of security will prevent an escape. Governors regularly test their own systems too, by asking a member of staff to try and get out of the jail without either ID or keys. Even if they manage to get through a couple of gates, they usually get picked up before they leave the prison. The quality of staff is critical, The best officers have an intuitive sense that something is going on. Too often, though, very young staff look after prisoners who've been inside longer than the officers have been alive. A common frustration of governors is the quality of new recruits. Astonishingly, governors play no part in selection, meeting new officers only on their first day at work. They say they can tell within minutes which officers are not going to cut it. Yet removing an employee can involve protracted HR exercises. The bureaucratic stranglehold is stifling. One governor told me recently that to buy a pot of paint, she had to go through a lengthy procurement process rather than send someone to the nearest B&Q. Indeed, governors spend more time wrangling with contractors for basic repairs or getting education and health providers to do their job than they do going round the jail. Inevitably, standard slip. At Ford Open Prison, I noticed that the football pitch was in unexpectedly pristine condition. I was told that prisoners could only play when supervised by officers in case they hurt themselves and that at the moment the prison was short-staffed, hence no football. After three meetings with prison service officials, we finally got them to agree to running an unsupervised football trial at Ford. A rare, if small, triumph. With all these constraints, it's hardly surprising that the turnover of governors in some jails is high. There are often very few applicants to govern the most difficult inner-city prisoners. One governor said to me, At times, I feel more like a contract manager than a leader. If this is what the job has become, then we will end up with people who like managing contracts, rather than inspirational leaders such as Pierre Sinha, who turned around HMP Liverpool, or Ian Blakeman, who has done a remarkable job at Pentonville. And the less impressive our governors are, the more violent and disorderly our prisons will become. Caliph may well be the last escapee during my tenure as chief inspector. Sadly, the stabbings will continue. That was
1: Charlie Taylor. And finally, here's Petrock Trelawney.
3: A pang of melancholy as I detached the Royal Albert Hall Pass from my BBC lanyard, I had a similar feeling late on Saturday night as I watched our team of engineers start to take down the hundreds of microphones that have enabled us to broadcast the proms live each night on Radio 3. It has been a remarkable two months of music making. The last season was curtailed by the death of the Queen. Covid infected the mood and scale of the 2020 and 2021 festivals. This time around, from my eerie in the radio commentary box at the back of the side stalls or the television studio high up in the gallery, there was a sense of a fresh start. On the last night, the BBC singers got the loudest applause. They were absent from the prom's guide, as their future was in doubt when the season was launched back in April. Last night, European Union flag-waving once again provided meat to newspaper columnists and correspondents. Post-Brexit restrictions on freedom of movement around the EU continue to hamper work opportunities for British musicians. The singers, conductors, instrumentalists and promoters I've spoken to are delighted that the new Shadow Culture Secretary, Tangum Debonair, has promised to fight for a visa waiver scheme for touring artists. There have been 12 Conservative Culture Secretaries in 13 years, some more passionate about their brief than others, but this succession of quick cast changes has hardly offered a ringing endorsement of the party's belief in the importance of the arts. The appointment of Debonaire, a cellist who studied at Cheetham's, Manchester's prestigious music school and the Royal College of Music, suggests there may be a more sympathetic response to those working in the arts should Labour be elected to power. Britain is still a member of the European Broadcasting Union. The Geneva-based organisation may be best known for the Eurovision Song Contest, but sharing classical music programmes between public broadcasters is another of its roles. Before the last night went on air, my co-presenter, Georgia Mann, and I briefed commentators from Germany, the Netherlands, Latvia and Estonia on what to expect. Fourteen European nations carried the celebrations live, with many more catching up since. It goes out in Australia on Sunday with broadcasts to follow in America and New Zealand. Radio as cultural diplomacy. And the prom's bounds set wider still and wider to reorder A. C. Benson's words to land of hope and glory. News that chairs used at the coronation were to be auctioned this week with an estimate of up to £4,000 a pair has made me particularly gleeful. At a recent supper party, my friend Robin got so carried away telling an anecdote that his chair collapsed under him, prompting me to review seating provision in my flat. On a visit to an antique shop in Semley, Wiltshire, I found what I needed, a set of six late Victorian chairs, compact, robust and recently recovered in elegant red tweed. I assumed the price, £70, was per chair, but it turned out to be for all six. Less than £12 a chair, compared to £50 for the cheapest equivalent at Ikea. I managed to fit four of them into the surprisingly capacious boot of the Fiat 500 I had hired for the weekend. The other pair rest in a friend's garage in Wincanton, awaiting my next journey on the A303. It is inexplicable that what the antiques trade calls brown furniture is so unloved. My Radio 3 breakfast show will be on the road in Northern Ireland this week. Our summer travels started in 2019 when we traced the River Severn from its source at Plynlimmon to the Bristol Channel. Yorkshire rivers and a coast-to-coast journey across the Scottish Highlands followed. With musicians playing outdoors, poets reading their work and the sound of birds, animals, wind and water, we attempt to paint a sound picture of each location. The strange noises captured by our hydrophone, an underwater microphone, always seem to get the most attention. This week I'll be gently luring it into five lochs as we journey from the Irish Sea to the Atlantic with visits to Carlingford, Strangford, Ney, Upper Loch Urn and Foyle. Expect harps, fiddles, pipes, barons, brent geese and wild eels along the way.
1: Well, that was Petroc Trelawney drawing to a close in classic style another week of Spectator Out Loud. If these articles have left you wanting more, then why not pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm Lyndon Kankaran. Thanks so much for listening and please do join us again next week.